Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for September 15th, 2016. The <coughs> edition I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. John Dickerson of Face the Nation is here in the D.C. studio. Hello, John. Hi, David. That's going to be hell for the transcriber. I know. I don't know how that gets. I don't know if that's just parens hacking cough or whether you just you write those letters out. I don't know. And Emily Bazelon is yonder and beyond. I don't know where Emily is. Who cares? I know where she Who is. Cares? I had breakfast with her yesterday. It was so lovely. I oh. had breakfast with her and Paul up in New Haven when I took my little jaunt up there to speak to speak to the Politic oh. magazine, and uh, we had breakfast together. It was like there wasn't an election going on, and then I had free to actual free time. It was oh. a real little window. She's doing well by all appearances. Okay, but she's not here today. But that doesn't matter because we have. From the Washington Post Deputy Editorial Page Editor, Ruth, the truth, Marcus. <laughs> Hi, Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Do you think that co- that coughing is like yawning? And when somebody coughs, you have the urge to cough along with them? Because I was just having that, but I'm not going to indulge really? it. Yes, I did. Maybe that's because you're a woman and of weak health and probably not fit for the presidency. Yeah, I don't have the stamina for the presidency. I can tell you that. Probably, or the strength. Probably not. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you don't weigh 267 pounds. <laughs> but the, the GabFest <laughs> listeners might not know that. On this week's GabFest, Hillary Clinton has a dreadful week, which was worse for her, her hidden pneumonia or her overt gaffes. Then Donald Trump's charitable foundation turns out to be much, much worse than we previously knew. And then is the economy improving as much as the census says it is? Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, why are Americans so scared of terrorism 15 years after 9-11? If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can get it by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. There has never been a better time, in fact, to get a Slate Plus membership for Slate's 20th anniversary. For a limited time, there's a 30% off deal. You can get a year of Slate Plus for just $35. That's bonus segments from us and all the other Great Slate podcasts. Lots of extra bonus content. $35 for a year. That is no money. Nothing at all. Pocket change. Maybe it's not pocket change. It's money. But, you know, that's a great deal. Also, Boston, do not forget, we're coming to see you October 26th, Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. at the Wilbur Theater. We have a live show right before the election. John, Emily, and I are really looking forward to it. It's going to be amazing. You can go to slate.com slash live for tickets there. It's going very fast. So I would get tickets quickly if you're going to get tickets. Uh, and I advise you to get tickets because it's going to be a great show. It's a beautiful theater. Wednesday, October 26th, slate.com slash live. Slate's founding editor, Mike Kinsley, who weirdly enough is sitting outside our studio at this very moment, but I didn't know that when I thought to say this. Slate's founding editor, Mike Kinsley, famously said that in politics, a gaffe is when you accidentally tell the truth. By that standard, Ruth Marcus is what Hillary Clinton said about Donald Trump's supporters at a fundraiser in New York City that they were, that half of them were a, quote, basket of deplorables. 
was that a gaffe or just a terrible mistake? Yes. Yes, it was. It, it was actually both. And a lot of the post um, basket controversy and commentary has been, okay, uh, as a matter of politics, it was not a smart thing to say. But as a matter of reality, here are all these polls that suggest that um, perhaps she understated the size of the basket. And, and, and if you look at the polls, there's a lot of really scary things, not just by Trump supporters, but by everybody in terms of racial attitudes, Islamophobic attitudes. I was really struck by some of the percentages of Hillary Clinton supporters who had not, not half, um, who had, um, bad um, really deplorable, like 28% I think, attitudes towards African-Americans. What? 28% of Hillary supporters of, of what? Clinton supporters answered yes to, I'm, I'm going to get my Reuters and YouGov poll confused. Oh, no. Answered yes <laughs> to the idea that basically problem. that whites work harder than blacks, those kinds I mean, of questions. Really, really unbelievable things that you wouldn't. And, you know, we, we sort of think that people underreport um, racist attitudes towards pollsters. Um, but so – she may have a point. It was not a point that should have been made in public. And I have like one smallish, um, but I think insightful point to make about this, but you be the judge. I don't think it's an accident that some of the most damaging things that um, presidential nominees have said in the past have been at fundraisers. Yes. <laughs> uh, Barack Obama famously talked about clinging to guns and religion at fundraisers. Mitt Romney famously talked about the 47% of people who don't pay taxes, by the way, that was right, and who um, are just relying on the government to help them and just can't be motivated at a fundraiser. And I think the re Hillary, there's a difference here, which is that Hillary Clinton knew this fundraiser, knew or should have known that this fundraiser was public. And so she made her remarks to a waiting press corps. But I think there's a reason for that, which is when you ante up the amount of money that it takes to get into a Hillary Clinton fundraiser these days, you want to have this feeling as a donor that you're hearing something that you're not going to hear in a regular campaign rally. And that leads the candidate to sound a little bit less like the candidate and more like the candidate's campaign manager with talk about polls and analyses of where things stand. I actually disagree. I think it's, you know, Hillary Clinton gave a speech a week before about the alt-right and and has been talking out loud about the connection between racists and Islamophobic forces in America and the Trump campaign. So this was that's their strategy. It's one of the reasons why you see Clinton up by 11 points in the most recent New York Times CBS poll among white college educated voters, a group that Mitt Romney beat. Barack Obama with. Those voters are the ones they've been targeting. Many of them are Republicans, traditional Republican part of the coalition that are terrified about Trump, both because they don't think he has the temperament for the job and also because they think he's uh, has these uh, opinions about race and religion. It's one of the reasons the Trump campaign is sending Trump to Detroit, to Flint, uh, g going into black churches, that he's softening his position towards the, the 11 million undocumented immigrants. And also, we should talk about the totality of what she said, which was she had the stupid remarks about her generalization and saying 50% were in this basket of deplorables. But it was the the... Precy to then saying, but the other half of, of Trump supporters 
are totally reasonable people who have reasonable fears about the economy and who don't see things happening on their benefit. And we should recognize that. And and they don't believe everything he has to say. And she was being empathetic, the other half. The problem was, it seems to me, the big problem was that she put a number on it. And the number she put on it, though, if you look at the Reuters poll that uh, Ruth was talking about, about 50% of Trump supporters rated blacks negatively compared to whites. And so that there is some data uh, that that she was that is out there. One of the numbers that here is that 32% of Trump supporters placed whites closer to the top tier in intelligence. 22% of Clinton supporters did the same. So the uh, issue of race is complex in America. The problem is that when your campaign slogan is America better together, um, you know, stronger together, I'm sorry, uh, you don't want to separate. You don't want to be in the business of separating. And also when you're complaining that Trump is putting people into groups, you shouldn't paint with a broad brush like that. But in the end, I'm not sure that politically this is a huge disaster for Hillary Clinton in the way that the 47%, which went right to a central weakness of Mitt Romney's, it was a disaster for him. I I want to go back. I'll actually just to your point, Ruth, about the fundraiser, because I just want to because you were nodding. I was nodding. Actually, but although, although I think <laughs> there's somewhere in between, which is I think that what happens at these fundraisers is is not exactly that they become like their campaign manager. It's that that the intimacy of the moment and the fact that they need to seem real causes them to maybe not re- – I mean to relax in some let sense. Down to, their feel, guard. to let down their guard and to sort of – to talk more colloquially. You know that if you you know if you and I were talking about – Trump supporters be like, yeah, half of those people are you would say Three you would quarters, just yeah, you would just, say you would say that in a way that you wouldn't if you felt like you were disciplined. It's but, the intimacy of the moment. But just to interject to relax. in the 47 percent moment and in the Obama talking about clinging to guns and religion, neither of those moments did they think they were on the record. Clinton knew she was on the record. She knew yeah. reporters were in the room. I'm saying I'm just saying it's well, not so intimate when you've got reporters standing yeah. there. It's perhaps more intimate than a than a stadium rally. But when something's captured that you think is being said only to a room of your donors, it is it's qualitatively different than when you say it in a room with reporters but, in a room. So can I interrupt for a second and ask, so but then you have to come up with, you've rejected the plots hypothesis and the Marcus hypothesis. What's your hypothesis about the reason for the gaffe? Well, the, re- the same reason she gave the the speech about the alt-right the it was, week before. But, it, but, but, but she didn't put half on it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Why would so, she well, say that's, half? That's just that's sloppy. The, yeah, the, the, but the, the part, sloppiness is one-tenth of the problem, not the whole problem. But if she hadn't said half, there would be no gap <laughs> right. at all. Right, right. But Everyone my point would is, have agreed like, oh, you're right. There are so many of Trump supporters really are you know, Isla- you know, Islamophobic right, and racist. But, but, and, but the point is that Mitt Romney's problem wasn't the percentage he used. It was the message. It was the sentiment. It's the sentiment. And yeah, here yeah. she's been saying the sentiment, believes the sentiment. In fact, when she walked the thing back, she didn't walk back the sentiment. She just walked back the percentage. All right. Let me change the subject slightly, which is that uh, – so coupled with the, – the other terrible thing that happened to Hillary Clinton in, in the past week was, of course, that she had this uh, incident, a 9-11 ceremony in, in New York, had to be helped into her car, clearly, physically, not at her tip top, and it comes out um, – of course, that she had pneumonia and that they, she had kept that hidden and sort of had tried to soldier through. Uh, so is, is this, John, in this case, is it the is it the cover up, not the not the virus that is the, <laughs> the problem? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you can look back and argue it a bunch, bunch of different ways. If they had announced that she had pneumonia, then uh, that would have fallen into what they were clearly clearly worried about, which was the successful effort by Trump and others to raise issues of her health. 
it was dumb in the way they handled it when she left the ceremony. Uh, they should have immediately said, or in fact, even before the guys, people in the pool noticed she was gone, should have told the pool, hey, look, she was feeling overheated. Uh, she was, you know, she diagnosed with pneumonia on Friday. She's going home and that's, but instead they waited 90 minutes. They first said she was overheated. Then they, there was a series, they were cascading series of explanations before they got to the full one. So there's a problem in and of itself. And there's a problem when your candidate has a truthfulness and openness problem, which means that everybody is already predisposed to thinking that she's secretive. So she, when she paves that way, it exacerbates an underlying weakness. The larger view, though, or the more important thing for everybody to keep in mind in these issues is that when looking at Clinton and her, her transparency issues, which include both the server and then the way she's behaved in the campaign explaining the server, but also explaining other issues like this, is that when we look at transparency and transparency in the context of the campaign, whether people hand over their medical records, whether they hand over their taxes, we're getting some view about their habits of openness that they might carry into the presidency. And by that measurement, uh, though Clinton came into the race with severe liabilities on the trans transparency front uh, because of the server, she's been far more open about her taxes and her health than Donald Trump, who has been – and we'll talk later about his foundation – who has basically uh, totally blown off the compulsory acts of transparency that are a part of the American political tradition. And so you can't have any confidence that as president, he'll be transparent at all. That feels to me the whole basket of issues here. Ruth, you a basket of deplorable issues. Yeah. Um, so, yes, John is totally right. Uh, grading on a curve, uh, Hillary Clinton is, you know, absolutely clear-cutly transparent. We need to see – I was just listening to Trump on Dr. Oz as we were coming in here. And, you know, uh, it's it's a joke. And it's, it's actually not a joke because it's a really serious question for both candidates, uh, c candidates of this age about their medical records. So Clinton versus Trump, Clinton wins the transparency Olympics. The real problem here, though, is Clinton versus Clinton. The reason that her press folks didn't tell us that she had been diagnosed with pneumonia is that as far as I can tell, they didn't know she had been diagnosed with pneumonia because she doesn't tell anybody. And we keep repeating this same self-destructive cycle of, I don't want to tell them. If I tell them something, it will only be used against me. Nobody else has to tell them. He doesn't tell them. I'm not going to tell them. And guess what? It always comes out or it comes out enough and you end up being worse off for it. What if Shay just said to us, hey, she was diagnosed with pneumonia. Her doctor told her to rest a little bit. She's going to go to the 9-11 thing because it's really important to her. How terrible a story would that have been? Um, but she always thinks she can get away with it. And she maybe she sometimes does. But there have been right. John and I and you and I have uh, we've all lived through enough times where that hasn't happened that you just want to bang your head against the table in frustration if you are me <laughs> and watching her right. all these years. And isn't John, doesn't this go to your your point about, again, uh, let me butcher the, the, the great Dickersonian point you make over and over again, which is the damaging things are the things which reinforce the 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 weakness that people already sense in you and this reinforces this sense that she's paranoid and secretive and so even though she is much more transparent than he is right. that's not what like people don't care about his lack of transparency they for some reason they do care about her secrecy and paranoia and this compounds that view and therefore it damages her in a way that his secrecy doesn't right right i think that's that's right now i think though 
We'll see where we are for the last eight weeks of the campaign. I think there. I think you can imagine between his weird health disclosure show on the Oz, Dr. Oz's show, plus his lack of the taxes, plus what we're learning, learning now about his foundation in terms of the opacity of the foundation, which was used, it seems to me, either used or allowed to happen a lot of things that weren't so underneath. I mean, in other words, that not everything checks out in the way he behaved in his in his private life. Um, that might all kind of combine to to be an issue for him, not the central issue that it is for Hillary Clinton, but an issue for him that he has to manage. So I'm not. I'm, so anyway, that's a way to uh, put those two in, in perspective. I guess one other thing I would say on this question of habits of transparency, there are, you know, there are many ways in which campaigns don't tell us or help us with how somebody is going to behave as president. But I think there is a way in which the demands and holding candidates of whichever party to high transparency standards in a campaign uh, carry over to the presidency. You make them make commitments. Donald Trump told me on Face the Nation that he's not going to allow any lobbyists or donors to his campaign to work in his White House. How he's going to pull that off, it's going to be very hard. But he has now said that on the record. Yeah, but John, he That's said he would than... give his taxes out on the record. He says tons of things and totally that, lies when... about it and doesn't isn't held to it. But having something on the record is always better than not having something on the record because then you can be held to it. And so uh, so that's axiomatic. Um but also then but, when but what does that even mean? I mean, he's been held to – has he been held to having to release his taxes? He's been held to it, but he hasn't released it. There's no there's no enforcement mechanism. Well, but anyway, more truth is better than less truth. Um, and that secondly, is not a lesson that I have learned in this campaign. That is not a lesson <laughs> at all that I have taken from this campaign. And secondly, this is a big lie campaign. And secondly uh, – but the big lie campaign means you want more truth. You don't want more lie. So, in fact, you're saying that this campaign should make you even more anxious to find out the the actual truth of things. But secondarily, there's a reason he has near, you know, his unfavorable rating is at 60 percent. And there's a reason that people don't trust him either. Uh, they may not they may trust him marginally more than Hillary Clinton, but they don't trust him because of these various kinds of behavior. Also, commitments you make in a campaign, you are held to as a president and you have to deal with them. And to the extent that the public has any kind of control at all on the process, you want them to make campaign commitments now that you can try and hold them to as president. You may not be successful in every instance, but you want to at least have them there to try and put some leverage on them. All right. Let's put a bow on this by wrapping a large ribbon around Donald Trump's waistline. Um, <laughs> Copious so, waistline. So uh, he, he, Ruth, you were listening to the his appearance on the Oz show, which I haven't heard. I just read the stories about said he was 267 pounds. 200. Actually, it turns out there were, was Re- different reporting, yeah. um, but the correct number seems to be 237. Oh, 237. Or so, yes. Still. Which is still, still. Um, actually gets you to a, and I don't really want to get into a body mass index context don't, with, don't contest with don't Donald Trump, but um, it gets you to a body mass index of 30, which mm. is considered to be, I believe, obese. Yeah. So, and he has a junk food diet. He's taking cholesterol medication. He doesn't exercise. He does uh, exercise. Way, He's he, explained yeah. that he exercises by going to campaign rallies, and I'm not making this yeah. up, waving his arms around. And by the way, the most delicious piece of the Dr. Oz thing, other than the fact that it's Dr. Oz, was that the doctor that he went to for his latest, it wasn't clear if it was a full workup physical because he kind of ducked that question, was, yes, the famous Dr. Bornstein uh. of most healthiest ever in the history of the planet. Fame. I just wanted to ask you a question about this, Ruth. So is it is it possible for Clinton at this point to to recover the health narrative? To is she is is the lost cause? Is she give it up to stay away from that issue? Or is there some way where she can still 
win that or should she just try to avoid losing it? Well, she has put out some additional things. She definitely needs to avoid losing it. It is actually true that she is the one who has had the health issue, if not a health scare on the campaign trail. Uh, it's also, it's, you know, there's no comparison at the moment, at least between the, tra- the two of their transparency on this. I think it might be a losing issue for her for this really complicated reason that I'm not going to do a great job of explaining, which is that, um, they are essentially the same age, but one of them is a woman and one of them is a man. And there's a weird and subtle way in which issues of age for women are kind, it's all kind of braided together. The ageism and the gender issues come together. Where And we think of a 68-year-old woman a little bit differently, perhaps, than we think of a 70-year-old man or perceive her that way. He's got a 10-year-old son, you know, he's virile, she's the proud grandma. Health is not a winning issue for her. It's just a solve-the-problem issue at this point. I think that's totally possible, although I was struck by something that somebody who said who's not a Hillary fan who basically said, you know, of course she was grinding it out with pneumonia because that's what women have to do. I, you know, I, you know I, having sort of played the woman card on the age thing, I'm going to say I'm sorry. I, that one doesn't really resonate with me. We've all powered through when we were sick and needed to get something done, men and women. One of my most vivid memories of you, John, during a campaign season is in the 2008 campaign right. when you were walking dead. You had you had you been appearing at some ceremony, you would have had to be helped well, into in car fact, by Secret Service agents. I had and what, you were probably forty or something. I had what, in fact, Hillary Clinton turns out from the release of the medical records that she released subsequent to the collapse was that she has a sinus infection and an ear infection, which is what I oh, had. God. But she inf- flying she had it treated. But I, the the way in which if this could be rescued is, you know, health and candor are mixed. It's obvious. So again, it's not just about whether she's healthy or not healthy. It's about this larger if- issue and the habits of, of um, health. And so just briefly, in 1955, Eisenhower has a heart attack. They don't tell the press. They say it's indigestion. 12 hours later, they finally tell the press he has a heart attack. The press is very angry. Everybody's wondering about Eisenhower's health. And James James Haggerty, who's Eisenhower's press secretary, then goes on a protracted campaign of burying the press in the tiniest little detail about every little thing that Eisenhower does related to his health, including the fact when his doctor comes and reports that he's having regular bowel movements, which causes the AP to have a crisis of confidence because they don't know whether to translate and pass that information on to the American people because it's not the kind of thing you talk about at the dinner table. On the other hand, it was released by the president's official doctor, so they did, in fact, print that important news. Eisenhower gives a shit. And and they um, (laughs) – And they basically buried everybody to solve the transparency problem, which could be one way to do it here. Which is what John McCain did. Yeah, yeah. Um, But, you know, I think that this this question of sort of what the – John mentioned the norm about um, releasing tax information, which we clearly have to find a way to kind of reinforce that norm and perhaps through legislation. It's a really much more complicated question about medical records because – requiring setting an expectation that people have no expectation of privacy in their health when they're running for president and that therefore their entire medical history should be available makes me a little bit nervous. What if you have a woman who's had an abortion? What if you have a woman candidate who's suffered miscarriages? What if you have, there's going to be a whole generation, it seems to me, of young men who have taken ADD medication. Are they going to be disqualified from the presidency? If you've seen a therapist, does that all become public? I think we need to figure it out and right. maybe set up a system. I have a, the Marcus plan is send everybody to get the work up that the president gets from Walter Reed or Naval Hospital or wherever it is, 
and have that doctor give us a report. Right. Problem I mean, solved. Yeah. If only I love it. I like we bring Ruth queen. on and we get solutions like within the first segment. So let's just wrap it. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. David Farenthold, who is your colleague at the Washington Post, Ruth, has been doing some incredible reporting about the Donald Trump Foundation he has done a series of stories about Trump and Trump's charitable giving. This week was two, the two pièces de résistances. One was <laughs> it's, it's not pièce de résistance. I perhaps I don't think it's I don't think it's a Greek root. Pièces de résistance. <laughs> yes, exactly. But you wouldn't pronounce oh, the attorneys sakes, general. The S yes. is silent. The S is silent. Anyway, uh, Ruth, what did he what did he find? What were the main findings that Farenthold had about the Trump Foundation? Actually, what I love about the Farenthold reporting is that it's a different kind of investigative reporting than we're used to because what he's mostly what the news is mostly what he's not finding. Right. In other words, he is not finding contributions the uh, the tens of millions of dollars that Donald Trump has says he has given to charity over time. Information that we would have if we had his tax returns, blah blah blah. The really there's one um, incredibly delicious piece of the story which has to do with the apparent misuse of the foundation for personal use. There was a gala, a charity auction. Melania bid $10,000 and then after checking with Donald, upped it to $20,000 for a quickie uh, portrait of Trump, of which half went to charity and half went to the quickie portrait painter. Said portrait, instead of um, being used for some charitable purpose, which hard to understand what that is. By the way, the money for that uh, was paid for by the Donald J. Trump Foundation. And the portrait then went apparently to the Trump golf course in Westchester, where it has not been seen, at least by the Washington Post's prying eyes. This would be a kind of minor-ish but telling misuse of the charitable foundation. The bigger picture issue is essentially that the millions of dollars that Trump's uh, not only are millions of dollars not there, but essentially the money that the foundation has been using has been non-Trump money. He hits up other folks for money to or other foundations for money to contribute to the Trump Foundation. 
then makes charitable contributions for which he is lauded as a pillar of the community and an incredibly generous human being, but is out of pocket, barely one dime. Yeah. So it's like his buildings where his name is on the building yes. that he doesn't own. It's but for, even it's better for the brand. Yeah, yeah. It's all brand management. Is um, he now? He also says uh, or claimed ludicrously that he's given a hundred million dollars, but he hasn't. You know, he's just not making. He's not telling. Show us the show, returns. Yeah, but he doesn't want to make. He doesn't want to make a big deal and, about it, Ruth. He doesn't want. He that's that's given privately. He doesn't want people. He doesn't want to be showy about that. That's not he, his style. He would never ask for, for. You know, some people give anonymously, and that would probably be the Trump way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, would be one the of Trump the magnificent way. things that Farenthold has been doing has been calling every charity that has been said to be the recipient of a Trump donation and coming up um, empty in terms of them actually receiving it. John, do we learn anything about Trump from this series of stories that we didn't already know? Yeah, I think it puts, you know, hard detail and fact to the fact that his boast is bigger than the reality. And that uh, isn't a criticism. That's his, according to the art of the deal, signature talent, as he describes it, which is braggadocio Puffing up a thing is his signature talent, creating an aura. He is a marketer, creating an aura around something that doesn't exist uh, for the purposes of creating value or making a deal or gaining leverage or whatever. That is his skill. And that is uh, and he boasts about having that skill. The challenge to that skill is obviously that's why transparency is all the more important, because reality trumps the brag. By definition, braggadocio is overstating the fact. And the reason this is important in his case is we don't we just don't know a lot about him in the presidential context. So you search for clues. He either can be transparent and facts can match up with reality in the context of the campaign or they can in his private life. The gap in his private life between what he says or what he hopes people will think he's like and the reality, there's a big gap there. So, okay, he was a private citizen. All right. So will he bring that gap into public? In the campaign, there's been a big gap. So that's something people should keep in mind. Obviously, you know, Clinton has her own gaps, but it's an important – it's not just a claim. It's now getting close to being a fact, which is I think we want more facts than fewer. I think there's one other reason that it's important, which uh, the uh, President Obama pointed out this week, which is we've been spending a lot of time – I've spent some time uh, wringing our hands about the Clinton Foundation and it, um, it, alleged issues with pay to play. There um, wasn't that much play for – what was paid and issues of lack of transparency and lack of following even their own rules on that. But it is certainly true that the Clinton Foundation raised hundreds of million dollars on its own and spent it for good causes. So as Donald Trump rails about crooked Hillary and talks about pay for play and tries to make an issue of the foundation, it is fair to ask about what he did with his foundation. And that also, I'm not sure if it evens the playing field, but it is relevant for that purpose as well. well. Here's what I understand. Obviously, Donald Trump's foundation is is a ridiculous entity in what it spends money on. It clearly has no philanthropic value of any sort. It's He's doing it to bribe attorneys general. He's doing it using it. Well, to, that to, was an accident. He's doing it to, you know, like endear himself to the local police department. The money they're spending on is on worthless causes for the most part. It is not – it is in no sense a, a philanthropy of value. But – if I were Donald Trump, why is it not a defense to say, yes, I got other people's money to fund my foundation. The Clintons get 
The Clintons are not spending the Clintons' money on their foundation. They're spending money that is coming in from uh, other but people. The, well, first of all, the Clintons actually have a response to that, which is take a look at our tax returns, buddy, and you will see that we have given of our own money millions of dollars to charity over time in addition to the time we have spent, time that Donald Trump hasn't spent raising money for our foundation, whatever you might think our you know nefarious purposes were on that. It's really analogous to the the – how Donald Trump has talked about how he can buy politicians, right? He could brag about that, but he has told us that he's really rich and he gives a lot of money away. So he can't really, being on the record on that, as John has pointed out, sort of take that one back. Also, the the donations, if they're given by yourself, is a signifier of character and charity and generosity. And you get all of these good things that accrue to you if you're the one who wrote the check and took the personal hit. That's separate and apart from whether... And this isn't to diminish, by the way, like there are people who do great work in the world by doing, as you say, getting other rich people to give money. And and that is val- of va- hugely valuable. It's not worth nothing. But it's different than in a political context where you're claiming or letting people believe that you wrote a check and therefore that's a personal skin that's that you've put in the game. I think also, obviously, just to go back, it just gives us another sense of the gap between the rhetoric and reality with him. And sorry, just to press another defense that perhaps or Trump supporters might might make of this, which is, yeah, I mean, he's a canny businessman. He's like he didn't he managed to to create this foundation and get other people to fund it and get credit for it. It's what he made a great deal. Like what another good deal that Donald Trump has made. I I actually think part of our historical culturally normed deal in America is that People who make a lot of money in this country by dint of uh, the opportunities that it gives us have a duty and responsibility and moral obligation to give back. And that giving back is out of their own pocket, not out of other people's pockets. Great if he can get the other people to chip in too, but, you know. No, I think that's right. And your, your, your rapaciousness is excused. You can be a robber baron. You can be a scumbag. Make your money. But the deal is that you're going to get some good work at the end. You're going to build a cancer center. You're going to fund the University of Chicago, build a bridge. I think that's perfectly defensible position to say that he's a canny businessman. But his argument has been that he will stop being so canny when he gets in office, that he will conform to the restrictions and constraints of the presidency in a way that he has not strictly conformed to the rules outside of the presidency, not that he's broken the law, but that he's clearly operated in a gray area in a number of different ways in the ways used in immigration laws. He has boasted about all of this, that he has taken advantage and gamed the system and he can game the system better than anyone else. He's also obviously said that about fundraising. But he says when he gets into the presidency, he's not going to be gaming the system. He's going to be operating within its constraints. So that's great. The question is whether there's any evidence that he can do that. One of the ways you would seek evidence is whether he can operate within the constraints of a campaign. And that takes us back to our transparency point. There are constraints, tax returns, health records. It's there. They are of generations long. They are the itchy requirements of democracy. If you can't put up with the itchy requirements of a campaign, you're not going to in the presidency. All right. Ruth, last word on this. Are there any more shoes to tumble in this Trump Foundation story? Are we basically played out here. The Trump Foundation story for David and the Washington Post, I'm so proud of uh, us, uh, has just been a gift that keeps on giving. We'll see. I don't think we are done with Trump business stories generally. And I think there is a a whole, this is opening up a, a slightly different can of worms, but I'll do it really quickly. I think there's a 
especially as these polls tighten, really important question that we've only started to address called, if Donald Trump is president, what can we reasonably expect from him in terms of setting up a system where he's not conflicted in every single way with his holdings? He's talked about both transferring the Trump organization to his kids and putting it in a blind trust that his kids would run. That doesn't really work with real estate that has your name all over it. It doesn't really work when you're a big piece of your net worth is your brand. And I'm just starting to try to think through if you sort of presumed Donald Trump is an honorable man and you presume that as an honorable <laughs> man, haha, that Donald Trump would want to alleviate any question about conflict of interest in the Trump presidency. Now I'm horrifying myself. What would we reasonably ask from him? And I can't totally figure it out, but I'm hoping to have an op-ed piece in the uh, Washington Post near you sometime soon on this subject. Is well, it, especially not by myself. Is the headline going to be if – let us assume that Donald Trump is an honorable man. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's um, – it's not just his own honorableness or not that he needs to demonstrate in his presidency. But there's also the criteria that he set for it, which again, I take back to his pledge not to have lobbyists or donors. But he has said he's taking on the moneyed interests, which means he's setting a standard for his presidency that no other president has followed in terms of having no outside influence, which requires right. transparency to check. Greater transparency than we have now and sets the bar even Wait, higher. It's actually – I just want to say one sentence about this. It is checkable now whether you have a registered lobbyist or a donor in your administration. I would actually argue that this is not a wise pledge. Sure. And, uh, uh, I understand. It's if it's his pledge, he needs it. to live That's, up to yeah. it, but it's a stupid pledge. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The census this week reported incredibly good news for the American economy. In 2015, household income went up more than 5%, a huge jump, helping to make back the enormous losses that households endured during the Great Recession. We're now back basically to 2007 levels of household income. The poorest people did the best, according to the latest report. There was really um, gains across all groups except the rural poor. That's a hard phrase to say, the rural poor. John, what is the reason for this. You're an economist. <laughs> you know, I don't know what the reason is, actually. Ask Ruth. She Ruth. Might know. <laughs> I, know, I know the reason. I just have the I politics the of this, but no, uh, um, I didn't actually, get to that part of the reading. Now, you, but you don't, you're not an economist, but you know enough economists to know that the answer is, we don't know precisely the reason for it. We need more data. This was a surprisingly good report. It surprised economists across the – I love the fact that there's a political spectrum of economists, by the way. It surprised economists across the political spectrum. There's a little bit of a worry, especially among the liberal economists, that it might be somewhat of a too-good-to-be-true report. And it's not that it's that, – not that the numbers are wrong, but they would like to see them persist for another year. 
the most good piece of the numbers was not the, as you pointed out, not just the overall increase, but the fact that we are finally seeing the bottom sectors of the economy in terms of the income distribution, not just gain, but gain more than the top. That has been, you know, what President Obama has talked about, addressing income inequality as the central challenge of our time. Now he can say, while looking at this and other measures that he's begun to address it. Yeah, although I think I didn't answer the question about why this is happening. I think the answer to why it's happening is that is twofold. One is that there are tight labor markets, which there haven't been, you know, wages go up like people, workers have well, more capacity demand and, and, and demand wages and, and minimum across wages. the country, higher minimum, minimum wages. wages have been pushed up. Yeah. Those are the, I think the two main reasons for it. Your caveat about the data is a good one because I I don't understand this very well, but it seems as though they've changed the methodology yeah. slightly and that maybe that has had an outsized effect. The uh, politics of this, John, let's nod our head there for a second. Does this uh, actually help Democrats in the way that I think they hope it will? They've been blamed for badness in the economy. Should they get credit if, if this is goodness? So in the bluntest way to look at that, you would you would say yes, because if you look at the election prediction models, most of them have, you know, they take GDP approval rating of incumbent and those are in most of the election prediction models. So the strength of the economy has a big influence on the vote. Now, the challenge is, though, that what political scientists John Sides and Lynn Vavrick have, have written about this cycle is that Obama, unlike I believe this is true. Any previous president has a delinking between consumer confidence and approval rating. The consumer confidence numbers have actually been improving before this. And the consumer confidence is different from actual real economic data. It's just the way people feel as opposed to the way things may be. Nevertheless, there is a delinking. So consumer confidence goes, it goes up. His approval rating does not go up. And there are reasons for that. They are race. They are partisanship. You have a situation where somebody – where you have Republicans who are in the top quintile of earners who have seen strong gains under the Obama years who nevertheless when polled think the economy is getting worse or feel strong identification with their political position based on the feeling that the economy is bad. There's a lot of noise in the system about the way people feel about their economic position that's separated from – what their actual economic position may be, and it takes time for this to come through. And in some of these states, Ohio and Pennsylvania in particular, there are towns that are really hurting from layoffs and shutdowns. And so the broad economy may be doing well, but if poverty is still persisting in rural areas and Donald Trump is getting a much larger share of the rural vote, then the people in those rural areas are not just misunderstanding the economic gains. They are in fact experiencing the bad part of the economy, which overall may be doing well, but it's not doing well for them. So there's a lot of reasons why this isn't going to change what has fueled the Trump support. Uh, and John points out one kind of factual basis for the failure of this terrific news to really permeate and change the way people are feeling. Uh, the other one that's even more powerful number is that despite these gains, despite the significance of it, um, median household income is still lower than it was before the Great Recession, 1.6% lower than in 2007. It's 2.4% lower than the peak of the late 90s. So if people aren't feeling that good, there's a reason for them not to feel as good. They're not as well off as they were 
eight years ago. And that's a problem. And another problem is that despite these good numbers, the economy overall is not growing at the robust pace that you would like to see it grow at. So they're, you know, they should have been popping the champagne corks at the White House this week. But at the Clinton campaign, they should still be biting their nails. Ruth, talk a little bit about the one of the points that John touched on there, which is that there are there are significant numbers of Americans who have beliefs about the economy that are simply factually wrong. Well, and you so know, when Donald can be Trump done about has, that? well, Donald Trump has not helped this by by coming up with fanciful, outlandishly, double-digitly large numbers of unemployment and especially unemployment among particular groups that you would have to, you know, one of them is, John, uh, fact-check me on the number here. He comes up with a number for unemployment among African-American youth that is something like 24 or 42, I'm 42, transposing, yeah. um, that you can only get to if you assume that Every high school student in America should also be uh, in the work. They should get a job. They should be working. They should get a job, Ruth. Um, Lazy, stupid kids. So look, there's a lot of misinformation being peddled. There is a lot of anxiety that's underlying the willingness to accept this misinformation is true. There is also, even if you don't have misinformation, George H.W. Bush experienced this. When the economy is getting better, there's a lagging responsiveness among the electorate to recognize that the economy is oh, getting better. So all just of Just remembered that. I had also a dream just, last night about George H.W. Bush where I was sitting next to him at a table and I, and I said, you know, I'm a lifelong Democrat, but I actually think you're the greatest president of my lifetime. Like that was my dream. Just and wanted to share. Also, and do you? I thought he was a really good president, in there's, retrospectively. Anyway. There's also some um, difference between the official unemployment rate and the youth. I don't think – I think you would have to be crazy to say that the uh, the employment today also is as secure and, and as solid as it was a generation ago. These you, jobs are transient jobs. You don't get as many benefits. They're hourly. Your control over your time is much less than it used to be. Uh, if you're a man in your 50s or probably a woman in your 50s also who's lost your job, you are in you're, not yeah, good shape. Yeah, yeah. You are – if you get another job, it is not – you know, almost certainly not going to pay you as well. Right. OK. Cheery. Thanks, Ruth. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When uh, you are sitting on the, the Marcus – in the Marcus uh, study over your cognac, swirling <laughs> cognac as – the Marcuses do every night. Marcus Leibowitz's. What will what will you be chattering Mr. about Marcus. with Mr. Marcus? It, this would make uh, Mr. Marcus um, drop his cognac because it would be about sports, which if you know me, I'm not a huge sports fan. And mine is not a cocktail chatter. It's a cocktail sputter. It's um, courtesy of Christine Brennan, who's writing in USA Today about Joe Paterno, who I gather was a very well-beloved football coach at Penn State, uh, now gone, but not before he turned a blind eye to the fact that one of his coaches was serially abusing young boys who were lured to the locker room and the showers. Penn State has paid, I think it's $92 million to settle some of the claims. $92 million? $92 million against it. That's a lot of money that could have gone for scholarships. So what are they doing this weekend? Yes, they are honoring beloved coach Joe Paterno for the first time since 2011 at one of their football games. Boo, Penn State. You know. Yay, Christine Brennan. uh, You know, look, Joe Paterno, what he did, totally indefensible. It's totally indefensible. Joe Paterno made a terrible mistake and 
and he allowed criminal activity of the worst sort to continue. I don't know. He's he is not himself a criminal. You know what? It when I was just because I'm incredibly diligent, Gab Fester, kind of speed reading. Okay, it was just the executive summary of the report that the investigative report that actually Louis Free did mm-hmm. on Penn State and the complicity. And you read that and you come away convinced that it wasn't just that Joe Paterno didn't kind of watch his coaches carefully enough. The- he was willfully blind to this and ignored warnings yeah. and you know right. what if it was your withdrawn. child withdrawn you be. withdrawn yes. withdrawn Thank withdrawn. You. withdrawn withdrawn john what is your chatter so it better my, it better be back in history it better not be like that one you had last week just my, the you're one on last, notice the one last week has gathered fans from far and wide uh uh so don't uh, disparage last week's gin and and um uh, this one is about – it is historical. I was reading this story in The Times about vitamin uh, B12 deficiency and it linked to a previous Times piece from July of this year by uh, Denise Grady about Mary Todd Lincoln who was famously – she had issues. She had super violent temper, had depressed moods more than her husband who had his own depressed moods. She was had these famous storms of anger and fear about burglars and she also had a massive shopping addiction. She had 300 pairs of kid gloves and there's been a lot of guessing about what happened to her. Some said she was bipolar. Others said it was syphilis. And that she was depressed because her syphilis had led to the death of one of her children and on and on and on. Anyway, the B12 theory that's in this piece is a new one. Syphilis given to her by her husband, by the way? I think that's another thought, which is why he kind of felt this unending guilt about her and what he'd done to her. And it was, you know, the theories have have blossomed. This new new entrant in the Mary Todd Lincoln theory is that – that if you have a B12 deficiency, that it creates pernicious anemia and that has mental health effects. And so if she just – and the mental health effects are you know, are quite severe. And so if she just had B12 supplements, it might have been all right and there may not have been a civil war. And we would all be – Why would there not have been I'm a civil war? I was just riffing. She would yeah. have been cheerier. And therefore, he, you know, no. If that, I was did he riffing. run for president to get – to get, get to, out to, of the get, house. Get it, yeah, to keep uh, – uh, no, the Civil War link, you can't even you can't even riff your way into how that would even be possible. Maybe he would have wanted only to – he would have been in brain. a good mood. He wouldn't have settled it. He would have been like negotiated peace. Yeah, you know. but he wouldn't have been so concerned about the union, preserving the union because uh, – I don't know. His own union would be better off. Yeah. Yes. But, but, but just to get divided. us into the present, what are our current candidates' B12 levels? Well, that's right. Need to B12, know. What do you think are going to – when we look back in a, in a century at – well, not us. When our great-grandchildren look back from the – living in the tropical swelter <laughs> um, and in, in the little bit of land that still remains and where the United States once stood that hasn't been swallowed by the risen oceans. Uh, what what are the health things that they're going to look back on, like that they're going to be amazed that we didn't know? Did they, oh my God, they didn't know that what they had was blank. They just taken it, could have they've just taken B twelve. It all would have been don't fine. Think it's going to be like Woody Allen and Sleeper, yeah. and it's going to be they just, just should eat you know cheese and steak. And well, well that's already good, happening. But yeah, but yeah, I love Sleeper where he's where it turns out cigarette smoking is good for you. By the way, Sleeper didn't – we watched it a few years ago. Doesn't it didn't really stand you. up all that well, really? didn't mm. think. David Sorry. is a notorious Woody Allen fan. Can't get enough of him and uh, 
Uh, all right. My Chatter is about a really great uh, series. I'm not actually sure what it is in The Times by a reporter who I don't know named Dia Hadid. I hadn't read her work before. But it's about what the Hodge is like. So she is going – she's a 38-year-old Muslim woman who's gone on the Hodge for the first time. And it's really – vivid and specific and poignant and how do the bathrooms work how do you prevent yourself from overheating do what does the inside of the the kawa look like not that she's been allowed to see it who's allowed to see it where do you sleep it's, it's sort of poignant because her mother wants her to meet a husband there and she's not meeting a husband and so that's that has there's an element of of a poignancy like how do you pay for the animal sacrifice that's going to be done do you actually have to sacrifice the animal what happens to the animal where does the meat go my favorite bit actually have you you i read not, it it's is about how you have to at some point you have to throw stones at the devil reenact and she's left-handed just she starts to throw her stones that she's gathered at the devil and she actually puts the stones in a little plastic cup um left-handed and people are like no 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 you can't throw left-handed that is there's some like superstition i thought it was just too crowded no i thought it was left i thought it was it oh i thought it was the the left-handedness oh i'm a lefty i'm a lefty Uh, too oh john not a lefty. Can I say my favorite part was explaining how if you're wearing a full face veil, you manage to eat ice cream. Oh. Which is really complicated because you have to like get a spoonful and kind of then get it under your thingy uh-huh. and then and do it all over again. It's not so easy. I, I Don't get a cone, I think was the lesson. Don't get a cone, right. Don't get a cone. The Hodge 2016. Don't get a cone. But there's lots of ice cream. Right. Yeah. Right. Because it's so hot. It's hot. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The GabFest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our show page is Slate.com slash GabFest, which has links to what we talked about today. Our Facebook page is Facebook.com slash GabFest. Our Twitter feed is at SlateGabFest, and our email address is GabFest at Slate.com. Please subscribe to the GabFest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating while you're there. Those help us. Also, I want to note that Mike Kinsley, who is our godhead and founding uh, editor, is sitting outside listening to the show. Hello, Mike. Hi, Mike. And Jacob Weisberg is also here. So Julia Julia Turner is here as well. Well, we're doing a Slate Editor Roundtable after this. Oh, that's so wonderful. So we're all gathered here. Wow. Not since Thomas Jefferson dined alone. Exactly. Uh, (laughs) Well, good, nice reference there. Uh, We'll talk to you next week. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.